0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss. Now, of course, some people are terrifically organized in the way they handle all those bits of paper that life seems to demand we keep. They'll have an indexed system, maybe a filing cabinet, different folders for different areas of interest. Uh, Other people go for the piles of papers sprouting at various unpredictable points around the house, like a fungal growth, and they may look completely haphazard, but woe betide the hapless partner who uh, thinks about moving the pile from its location. Me, I'm very organised, I've got an excellent mental system uh, all mapped out. I, I haven't implemented it yet, and in fact all the papers that I'm supposed to keep go into a triage pile ready to be sorted and uh, well, they never get sorted. Uh, and I suppose I at some point I'm going to have to come to terms with the fact that that single pile containing uh, all sorts of miscellanea in no particular order uh, is my filing system. But how does London handle its old paperwork? No unlabeled cardboard boxes growing mouldy in the attic as far as London is concerned. No, no, we have the London Metropolitan Archive and it is to there that we go today. And whilst this episode was recorded back in July, today is the 22nd of August, 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud.
1: Hey baby, let me take you down So we'll some strange sights and the sound You ain't never seen the light before Just a song's through your front door Hey baby,
0: Well hello, hello. As you know I'm not one to complain about the weather, particularly when we've spent many a broadcast trudging around London, particularly uh, trying to make our way across bridges in high winds and battering rain. Uh, So uh, a bit of sunshine should go down well, but holy moly. It's hot. We're in the back end of July. The microphone has melted to assume the shape of my hand, and I've been approaching today's interview, praying for air conditioning. There's a, there's a bit of a, a wisp of cool air reaching its way through the building in which I find myself. I'm in Clerkenwell, Farringdon, that sort of area. With me is Lawrence Ward. He's the principal archivist here at the London Metropolitan Archives. Hi, Lawrence.
1: Hi. Uh, we should
0: obviously start with the description of what the London Metropolitan
1: Archives Basically, yeah, we store documents. It's always a difficult thing to describe exactly what an archive is and what we do, but usually we say it's um, similar to a library in a sense. It's a research centre, it's a a public research centre, so anyone can come here and and see the documents that we're looking after. Uh, The documents that we have are just about London. That's our focus, and they date back to 1067. That's a beautiful. Ta- okay, so I was uh,
0: orienting myself according to the map that's being displayed on the lobby wall downstairs, and that dates back all the way to the 16th century. And I was marveling at the age of that. But what have you got that goes back as far as the 11th?
1: So it's the the very first document in the collection is a charter from William the Conqueror. This is immediately, well, a year after the Norman Conquest, uh, William created a charter for the citizens of london uh, it's quite a short document short small stubby document in fact it's an interesting thing because it's written in english which wasn't normal at the time it's kind of a spin exercise and what william does is he basically effectively he just grants the citizens of london the right of inheritance and the ability to to continue living uh without without absolute conquest i guess you might say that's very exciting that he's doing it in English.
0: Of all the people, you, he's the last you'd expect to do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Were well, there are a lot of documents, do we know, that were written in English? Uh,
1: not so many from that period. It's, it is quite unusual. Um, like I say, I mean, I, I think people have sort of described it as a very, a very early spin politics. Ah, OK. Um, I wonder whether a, an important
0: point to touch on before we go a step further would be the definition of London as we move through the period that these documents relate to?
1: Yeah, so the, the archive collection grows already with London. Um, it, from that period and from, the I guess, the early centuries, everything's already focused around the city and the river. Uh, and then you start to see the spread out across to the South Bank. And then, really, you start to see organisations like the London County Council arriving at the end of the 19th century and then our, our area really is what was the county of london which we'd think of as inner london today uh, and obviously by 1965 greater london covers all of those outer london areas now the outer boroughs the enfield barking and dagenham those kinds of places so the collections that we manage here cover the whole of the greater london area um, and they in terms of their age they they grow out from the center basically
0: so that seems to speak to an enormous burst of administrative uh, jurisdictional change just in the last century it sounds from what you're saying as well we know the, the romans stuck the walls up and then they drifted off and then we sort of inhabited within the walls but then you're saying only at the turn of the last century really did we suddenly get these this massive blossoming of uh, humanity all around the outside today.
1: yeah and, and it's recorded really nicely in that way i mean prior to that there are administratively the the organisations are a bit more ad hoc Uh, prior to the county councils their arrival at the end of the 19th century we also have the records for what was Middlesex here as well Um, and obviously Middlesex which was something which disappeared for some people at least um, in 1965 with the GLC um, so we have the Middlesex Archive, the London Archive but then we hold the GLC Archive here now as well and we also have some records from the GLA as well so that the administration of London is definitely something which we cover really really well Or oh, We better break down those acronyms So the, the Middlesex County Council is MCC, London County Council is LCC GLC is the Greater London Council that was the organisation that took over from the London County Council in 1965 and then the GLA, the Greater London Authority is, the, is the, what we have today GLC, I always find myself as ...associating with Ken Livingstone for some reason. Yeah, Ken Livingstone is very, very much a part of that organisation... And, ...and Ken Livingstone's papers are part of that archive here. Uh, it is a very, very interesting archive. It covers the 60s, 70s, 80s, really interesting period in time. It also includes things like the Inner London Education Authority... ...which was the Education Authority for London... And they created some really interesting uh, learning and resource materials... ...which we have here, including a huge collection of films and videos... ...which we manage as well. They were, they were the, the, the schoolroom films, which you might remember... Uh, from being at school when you all sat in front of the TV and the countdown came on. The, the Inner London Education Authority produced a lot of that stuff and it was shown all over the place. It sounds as though this isn't a big
0: box where papers are kept in perfect condition and cold storage. This is something that people are able
1: to access. Yeah, absolutely. We're open Monday through to Thursday every week. We are closed on Fridays, but we open some Saturdays as well. We do late evenings on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because we know a lot of people obviously work and want to be able to get in and do this kind of research in the evenings. Um, obviously you know we have two focuses one of them is providing the access and making sure people can get their hands on the material that they want the other the other focus that we have is preserving it and making sure it survives for future generations and that that's always a, a bit of a, a struggle it's the wrestle for archivists and conservators how how do you get the balance right and make sure that the material is being cared for but it's actually also being seen and used at the same time I don't know whether I'm about to tread on delicate territory or not, but who
0: owns all of this stuff? Why is it the case that it's open to the public?
1: Um, Well, ownership varies from one collection to the next. So we have some material which just comes here on deposit. The ownership might be retained by the organisation that created it, but they they basically allow us to keep it here and give the public full access to it. In terms of the... uh, the older uh, administrative organisations like the LCC, the London County Council and the Grace London Council, all those are technically are owned by us now. Um, we're managed by the City of London Corporation and so they, they effectively fulfil that role in managing the collections. Um, but in terms of ownership, it really does vary from one collection to the next. So I guess the
0: the next question then would hinge on the nature of the material that's being stored here. I know it falls into quite a number of categories, but one of the conversations that's quite current at the moment, particularly with the Internet is access to people's information. Who who has access to it? Are organisations able to see things about you? And then are other people able to access the information that they've uh, obtained? So how do those issues play out here with sort of physical materials, I would guess, uh, to, to a large part, and also presumably computerised stuff? Is it the case that everything you've gathered up is available to anybody who wants to see it? Yes, yeah, sadly, that isn't the
1: case. Um, a lot of the material which comes in may have a closure period to start with. So if it contains what would be considered to be sensitive information. For example, we have a lot of records from the hospitals in London. The patient records wouldn't be immediately open. There's a closure period on those, and then after a period of time, they're then available to researchers. Um, At the same time, a lot of stuff which comes in is uh, is open uh, immediately, and generally that's because it doesn't really impinge on personal information, those kinds of things. It might be more say ledger books and uh, recipe books from a company that that kind of material um that said you know obviously while we have a lot of 20th century material there's an awful lot of stuff which predates that most of that is open now mm. primarily because of age
0: yeah okay so we, we came across some issues a little bit like this at uh, bart's pathology museum where some of the bones of human beings that are there on display we couldn't talk about because it might be distressing to somebody who would regard that person as somebody they knew or had a particular association to i know that with public records sometimes they're released after 30 years i think or 50 years depending on the sensitivity how long is deemed an appropriate period of time to wait and i presume we're talking about after somebody's death for for example for a medical record
1: yeah it can be and it does vary from one class of records to the next um there's national regulation for this kind of thing within archives so national archives which is the the lead body basically for the uk sector uh we work with them and other organizations to make sure the the kinds of closure periods that we have in place are are basically appropriate the length of time that's there i mean in terms of protecting people's rights and you know making sure the material which could be opened for research is open for research basically you answered that without any numbers <laughs> it, there are different closure periods for different types of records basically I, I can't think of specifics off the top of my head um but there are there are three or four different
0: key classes i'm sort of wondering if i had uh, a particularly interesting operation of some sort and then uh, passed away how long would it be before somebody were to find out that i'd have my appendix removed
1: <laughs> i'm not so sure to be honest with you I, th- I think the closure periods of for the hospital records off the top of my head are probably around 100 years but I'm not 100% sure about that. I'd have to check. Oh, no, just, I was wondering if it's sort of okay, five minutes is over and no, get, no, that, no. get this online. Oh, no, no. It's, these are long periods of time. <laughs> uh,
0: what about that whole digitization thing as well? I mean, I, I know we're going to be finding out how the information is accessed here. Is it the case, as is happening with other museums, that they're physical collection often the complaint with uh, physical artefacts is that it's very difficult to find the space to display even a, a reasonable proportion of what they've got in their collection and so digitization and online representation becomes
1: an important part of what they're doing is that a factor here that particular problem is not really an issue because as long as the material is open and I would, I would guess that about 95% of it probably is you can come in and, and request to see it so that that's how material is viewed here it's not a question of it being a static uh, display as such Um, we have our lists you come in you browse them you find out what you want to see and then you order it up Um, there's comparisons i suppose are made to a famous high street chain of catalog shops whereby you drop in you make your order and then it's brought up to you that's kind of how it works here as well but what you might be ordering up here could be maps books uh, deeds charters those kinds of things that said we do digitize a lot of material because of probably the status of London in world history then there's a lot of interest in this material in the states and Australia and other english speaking parts of the world and beyond as well beyond that um, so we've digitized quite a lot of material probably m- the most popular material we have is stuff which relates to family history that's that's probably been um, our main user group for quite a long time people are looking for their ancestors um, and they' Using different classes of records. They might be church records or school records or all sorts of different things. And they're looking for the names of their family and putting together their, their family tree. So we have digitized a lot of that material. And it's available online and it's, it's used in lots of different places. And obviously, we still provide access to it here as well. We've also digitized a lot of our image collections as well. They're really, really popular. We probably have one of the best image collections for London anywhere. Um, lots of different photographs, prints, drawings and maps, that kind of material. And we have an online image system there. So anybody can view those images and, and then if they if they want to do take take the research further really, they can come in and, and work with us here. Although digitization is really important, it's really increased the way that people can access the material and given more people the opportunity to see the London material. It's still, I think, actually quite important that they're able to come here and and actually find out about what else there is and get advice from the people who work here as well. The staff who work on the information desk can help them to kind of go on and branch off into different areas and maybe tell them about some types of material that they didn't know about. Well, there's a bit of me that's relieved as well that there
0: is this digitization going on, purely on an insurance angle, because I was reading the history of the various collections coming together, and there were several points there where the history said, well, there were these two... Uh, discrete collections of information and it was decided that they should be housed together in the same uh, building and you're looking at the date thinking, well, this is just before a major war. Is It's really such a great idea. So uh, if, if the worst came to the worst and, uh, the, I don't know, uh, uh, something terrible were to happen to the building, a lot of the collection's safe anyway.
1: Yeah, in that sense, there is a, there is a digital copy out there of, of a reasonable amount of the most popular material, but it's this is a huge archive. Um, uh, there's, we estimate about 100 kilometers of material on shelves in this site. That's the shelves, not the material. That's the shelves. So if you took the material off the shelves, it would be more. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a big collection to manage. And obviously what we digitize is the, the most popular stuff by and large I mean there are other reasons for digitizing as well but um digitizing itself is is not a cheap and easy process so we have to be quite selective about what goes through but it's something which is a constant program for us there's more material being made digitally available every year well that made me wonder actually when you said the genealogy stuff is something
0: you're working on because I imagine a lot of the documents that are relevant to to somebody's quest to find out more about their family might really only be of interest to to them and I can imagine some sort of big compendia of information that may be relevant to a wider audience. I was a bit surprised to hear you say that about genealogical uh, material so maybe I've misunderstood how uh, what sort of material it is.
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, uh, the genealogical material, I mean, I guess probably the most popular source of the parish registers, the parish churches. Oh. And so they give you the lists of baptisms, marriages and burials. Um, obviously, they're interesting, interesting to the individuals who are looking for their grandfather or, or whoever. But they're also really useful to social historians as well. Um, a good example uh, would be um, the burial registers from the time of the plague. And there's a really interesting one for Deptford, for a church course St. Nicholas. And just browsing through the pages of that register, you see how burials during that year change in the parish from being week on week, maybe 10, 12 people. And you see the gradual increase, and then suddenly it's 200, 300 people in a week being buried in the, in the parish. And so the, the records have had a much bigger life and an extended life which has been i guess i guess broadened by digitization because it actually gives those academics and researchers who are interested in different themes different social history themes for london that chance to actually get into that material and 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 actually using it digitally in that way it's quite a quick and speedy way to work through material compared to calling up all the individual registers and seeing them one by one
0: well this has been a long preamble to what i think is about to become an expedition into the building itself Um, i'm I'm not going to lie we've talked a little bit longer than we usually would because there's air conditioning just here and it's a tonic i must say if we glance around us this is a very uh, relaxed feeling environment very modern from the outside it's a a red brick older looking structure in a very traditional part of town really but in here you get the feeling that uh, things are happening it looks like uh, how your university library could have looked if somebody had made an effort and there's also uh, one or two exhibitions going on here at the moment what sort of thing is on show
1: so our main exhibition at the moment is um, emergency london 1914 which is about the outbreak of the First World War and how it affected London specifically—that um, tends to be the focus for most of the work that we do. Um, and so we've picked out some particularly interesting records, put them on display, and then provided some additional exposition around what was going on in London at that time. So uh, we'll be hopefully looking in on that and uh, having a look around the place. Where where should we start? We can go to the exhibition, or if you like, we can go behind the scenes, and I can uh, show you some of the stuff that we've been talking about. We're, we're sitting on the tip of the iceberg here. The, the floor space we have in the public rooms is, is tiny compared to all of the storage that's around us. Well, that sounds
0: uncomfortable. So let's. Uh, well, I'm a sucker for behind the scenes. So let's go there first.
1: London Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of sixty thousand titles, try the Audible service on thirty day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk Londonist and click through.
0: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin wolf and I'm behind the scenes <laughs> the, at the London Metropolitan Archive. Elevators with this kind of door abound. how you know you're behind the scenes. <laughs> Where are we headed first,
1: Lawrence Ward? Well, we'll get down to the basement level in the main block. This is, we have two buildings on site. This is the older one of the two. This was originally a print works, the Temple Press. Um, it's ideally suited to storing archives because originally they were storing a lot of paper here, so the floor loadings are massively impressive. Oh, so, this, so this was a building
0: made for example?
1: Basically, yeah. Hmm.
0: well we 're out into the standard issue basement um, you 've seen this in many an adventure movie
1: <laughs> uh, we 've said a few times that this would make a really good film set uh, it 's not obviously it's not ideal those have film crews charging around an archive so I heard a
0: wonderful story about a film crew attempting to film in the uh, bascule chambers at, underneath Tower Bridge. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. Yeah. With the uh, the great big, if if you haven't, listener, seen those before, uh, where Tower Bridge's arms lift up, uh, the big fat bit that you can't see goes down like a garbage compressor into a chamber beneath. It's got a a big curved wall. It's very intimidating even just to be in the chamber without the thing doing that because you can imagine being squished and every so often film crews hire the area and they set up all their lights and everything uh, not realising that if a ship is within sight then they've got 20 minutes to clear out and so they hired the thing apparently for the day this uh, film crew but there were quite a few boats that day and they got about two minutes of (laughs) filming. Anyway, uh, we're into uh, an area that contains Enormous ledgers, and um it, the smell is gorgeous what, what are these this must be the oils from the the leather covers isn't
1: it yeah it, it's the leather you can smell um, it's quite a distinct smell for archives um archivists know this very well, i guess. Uh, I think it's quite a nice smell. It's, for me, it's uh, very, very familiar, obviously. So this is one of the, the lower basement storerooms that we have. Uh, and obviously you can see it's in the older part of the building, so the ceiling height isn't very high at all. Well, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> uh, it's quite cool down here as well, which is nice. You said is how much? Stay down here, actually. This is, I mean, this is just the natural temperature of this room at the moment. Um, we, we have lots of cooled storage in the site. Um, this is one of the older rooms in the building, which m- maintains itself very well without too much intervention. Um, We have all sorts of material stored down here um, just around you at the moment. It's something called the Middlesex Deeds Registry. This is one of the earliest um, deeds um, registers, to put it simply, that was created in the country. It basically lists land transactions in uh, what was the Middlesex area, but that included lots of what's London today at that time when the Middlesex boundaries were actually a lot lower down than they were, say, in 1965. Middlesex effectively came up to the city and Westminster as well.
0: Hmm. And um, for, uh, to give a, a description to give an impression of what we're looking at here we've just walked as you heard in between two long rows of grey enameled stainless steel cabinets they've got handles on which makes them uh, look as though they could be rolled along and in one of the areas we've stopped at here it's about the size of a walk-in wardrobe and well it's i can't get away from the attractiveness of old books each of these ledgers is uh, something like a yellow pages in size and it's equipped with a a leather uh, handle it may well be so that you can pull it out and have a look at what's in
1: there yeah and you you can see unfortunately over the years that some of them have uh, been damaged the leather doesn't necessarily last very well but the books themselves uh, are actually pretty good um if we pull an office is 1839 lawrence is wrestling with a tomb that's the size of both of us combined yeah, and basically listing a property transaction, thats this is exactly what the Middlesex Deeds Registry is, but incredibly important in terms of describing what's happening in London and how land ex- is exchanging hands. I mean, that's been a central part of the development of the city and its surrounds for such a long time.
0: This must be a nightmare
1: for finding anything.
0: I mean it's all, for a start I should say that it's all in handwriting and it's uh, there there are some forms of handwriting you can read and some that are so elegant that uh, they become completely illegible and I must say I'd struggle to read what's going on there but, but do they is this beyond the year
1: uh, is there any sort of indexing system could you could you happily. get to an entry <laughs> happily there is an index Thank goodness for that and there's uh, one of the small volumes here so this was obviously uh, indexed n- not too long ago um, but you can see it's been typescript. This is typewriting on, uh, on paper. So I guess this was probably done uh, in the early part of the 20th century, somewhere around that time. Oh, actually, so, we've got a date here. I mean, is that, does that relate to it? Probably is. So this is the the 6th
0: of December, 1938.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a really good index. I mean, it's a well used collection. A lot of people who are. You often find people who maybe own a bit of land or. Um, uh diff- well, river banks, all those sorts of things often come in to try and settle land disputes by going back to these old volumes which actually described who owned what when. And and they're still they're still used for that purpose fairly regularly.
0: Do you then find the collection mixed up in any controversies in in terms of uh, providing proof for something that's uh, sensational?
1: It can be, I mean, different parts of the collection, not just this one, but all over the place. I mean, records have been called up to go into various different court cases over the years. Um, In a sense, that's what archives are, as evidential value. Um, It's it's probably a small use compared to things like family history and research and that kind of uh, use, but it does happen.
0: Well, now I'm trying to piece you together a little bit. Off, Mike, we mentioned that you have, and I hope it's okay to mention this, uh, you have interests in uh, performance Mm and uh, acting and film and that kind of stuff. And that would seem, on the face of it, at odds to uh, a basement full of
1: papers and no people. <laughs> how, how does that all fit together? Uh, yeah, well, to be honest with you, I don't spend too much time down here. Ah. <laughs> I'm usually up, I'm usually up and out and about. Um, yeah, I, well, I, I do I do really love history, and that's why I was ultimately drawn to this job in the first place. And London, as well, it's, for me, it's quite a special city. So. Uh, but having a role which is is actually working around these collections it is kind of a privilege, you know. I mean, I, I do enjoy it, um, and I, I do like to support those kind of cross cross creative uses of the collections as well. And so, it overlaps with some of my interests around performance and the arts. And I always like to try and support those kind of usage requests as well. And we do get a lot of people wanting to come in and use the materials here to maybe inspire new creative works, that kind of work. Um, We're working at the moment with uh, an artist who's actually based out in the Netherlands but he's creating some maps um, of London uh, during the Second World War and he, he's he's already done them for Berlin he's trying to do them for each of the key cities which was involved in the conflict and he's layering up different maps to show this this exposed view of history which includes statistical information and very very interesting and but he's, he's a working artist and ultimately that will go into an exhibition and it's nice to be able to support that kind of work so there can be quite nice overlaps between my interests in, in both managing the history here and what I'd like to do in my time when I'm not yet.
0: But is that, is that sort of experience, the cherry in the fruitcake? Because some people go into a particular line of work thinking oh, i'm going to get loads of this and they actually find that the thing they like is a sort of one percent of the job and, and there's actually this other thing that they end up doing all the time instead do, do you still get to access and to scratch that itch to do with history and creativity
1: and creative thinking around history occasionally yeah uh, I, w- I won't uh, say there isn't an awful lot of stuff which doesn't give me that at all but but yeah i do i mean we the, the exhibition work we've, which we've mentioned is a really nice way to bring some of that creativity in as well um but you know really we're facilitators here we're helping other people to to get their creative projects off the ground and to be honest with you i by and large i probably have more ideas than i have time to actually do anything about but you know it's, it's just nice being around all this history and it is it is a really good way to inspire new projects i think so i should ask then uh, particularly
0: in case somebody's listening to this and are uh, interested in uh this line of work
1: what is your day-to-day what are you doing as a principal archivist um well i have three teams that i manage so we and the three teams that i have work particularly around what we call our graphic collections which are the images the prints the drawings those kinds of things so i'm working with that team to get all that stuff cataloged get it online where necessary uh, make it more accessible to the public and support research uses those kinds of things i also have a team which does all of the digitalization work here as well um so there's quite a technical job but um, quite specialised and very skilled and I have a team as well that works more with um, what we call records management, some more day-to-day business records for the City of London Corporation and they also work with areas like digital preservation which uh, um one of the biggest challenges that most archives face mean, um, the stuff which you see on the shelves here uh, this is 1842. It survived quite nicely. Uh, the paper's all good. People, have, It's been used a lot, but it's still all here. But if somebody's put something on Betamax. Exactly, yeah. When we do have some Betamaxes... <laughs> <laughs> <it's here. laughs> and, and they are a bit of a problem. But, I mean, we have even more awkward video formats in the collections as well, which, you know, you, you, you encounter them for the first time, really, in an archive collections. Things like Helical scans and that kind of stuff, which were very short-lived. So... Yes, uh digital preservation particularly around um go the lights digital preservation particularly around things like um, I guess Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, those kinds of things. It's reasonably straightforward, but once you start getting into more complicated formats like CAD drawings and that kind of material, it's actually quite difficult for an archive like this to maintain that.
0: But what's the, the general principle then? Do you have a sort of a standard archive format that you bring everything to, or do you have to maintain all these individual... Uh, types and keep presumably keep the old machinery somewhere along the lines like, that you
1: can access them. what's the what's yeah. the strategy no we, we i mean we can't realistically keep the machinery i mean um what we generally try to do is is make accessible copies which will be in formats like pdf something like that which is fairly simple to manage but digital preservation means that you have this ongoing maintenance and check of the material so every year you're making sure if you can still access it and get to the information it's not easier and it's a challenge for most organisations that are working in our sector and outside of our sector as well. I mean, I think it's an issue for society as a whole. I was having a very similar conversation with somebody the other day about you know, the fact that people document their lives in a different way today and, and, and much more comprehensively maybe using Twitter and Flickr and Facebook and those kinds of media. But actually what's the long-term preservation of that material and whose responsibility is it to keep it if it's in the hands of the the corporations that own those companies Mm. then i'm not sure that's quite the same as the job that we do here today so although maybe the question is do we need to keep collecting photographs of london then maybe we do because actually in an archive like this whereas we have photos going back to the 1860s of london if we don't keep on top of collecting images today there is no guarantee that anybody else is doing it even though there's so much, there's proliferation of material out there on the internet. But whose responsibility is it to, uh, to preserve that for the future? I've sort of got something lurking in
0: the back of my mind, and I don't. I think it might be a ridiculous question, but well, that's never stopped me yet. And I've got a, a bit of a suspicion that with some technological scenarios, you're busy creating content or, or importing content, but actually the framework belongs to somebody else. And I can't think of a precise example at the moment. I mean, certainly I pay a monthly rental fee for my Microsoft Office suite. So if I didn't keep paying that, then that would be whisked away from me. Uh, but I guess that's a fairly easy thing to own. But I wondered if there are any other um, sort of s- structures around what you're doing um, that, that you know m- might offer a sense of vulnerability because they might expire, uh, become
1: obsolete, be taken away. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, we for some of the material which we digitise and make available online, we, we have a, a- a third party partner, a commercial partner that we work with to make that material available that's primarily because of the costs involved in, in digitising this material in the first place, as a local authority organisation it's difficult for us to front mm. that working with a third party who's willing to take the risk on digitising it and putting it online then that's really the only way that we can do it for the time being, we have we have done some of that material ourselves, we do have some material which we've made accessible through systems like Collarch, but it's on a smaller scale when you start talking about millions and millions of images, then yeah, you do need a third party involved obviously that's all covered by contracts and set periods of time and so we we work within those kinds of structures and know when we're going to be looking at renegotiating contracts looking at how the future looks for us i think in in a sense as as long as there's a continuing interest in history and particularly family history uh then i don't think that's too much of a risk for us i think there'll always be the opportunity to work with someone to put that stuff out there well, that certainly makes sense in London, where there's uh, never
0: a shortage of interest in uh, matters historical. Um, where do you stand globally as an
1: archive? Well, um, <laughs> city archives, of which we're one, um, I, I, I don't know if there's a competitive nature between them. but certainly I think I, I've just heard you say there's a competitive <laughs> nature between them. I think certainly colleagues here would say that this is probably one of the largest archives in the world, although we were talking to some archivists from Moscow. Uh, last week and it did seem they were slightly larger than us which was a little bit disappointing
0: Um, I I should remind the listener that this is not long after some terrible events in Ukraine I wonder what the tone of that conversation was
1: it was it was interesting it was actually just prior to that when they came over and that was a study visit from Moscow archives so they were coming across to see how we work what our systems are like how we go about various different pieces of work so Um, From that point of view, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, they actually sound like they're they're doing really nice work over there, particularly digitally as well. It seems to be really well invested.
0: Well, while we've been recording, the lights have been going out, which is clearly a sign uh, that we've been standing still too long. So we need to move to our next destination, I suspect. Okay. Yeah. Where are we off to?
1: Um, well, I can take you, you've seen one of the older parts of the building in the basement here. Um, what I'll do is I'll take you across the, the new, what we call the new block, which is the newer purpose-built storage area, which is the other building which we have on site. And you can see how today we build storage areas specifically for, we'll have a look at some maps, I think. Well, sounds good to me. We will be right back for exactly that. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram.
0: We are at the London Metropolitan Archives. And we've definitely just walked through a hospital. My nose attests to that. The, there's no doubt the flooring is from a hospital. It looked like a hospital. We've passed over a hospital interior bridge uh, sunshine still beaming down outside people cooking themselves in the park beyond and we've now arrived in what looks like a set from tinker taylor soldier spy a very 1970s tall teak cabinets they look like they might contain maps long strip lighting what is this room
1: this is a map storage
0: room. There we go. <laughs> Job done, let's go.
1: <laughs> so this is one of the main map storages we have. We, we do have a very, very large collection of maps for London. and Again, as you mentioned earlier, they date back to the 16th century, uh, right through to the present day. Um, and cover kind of uh, all different um, thematic areas, really. Um, one of the most popular ones was the one that we were, we were going to have a look at. Um, this is a very unusual map which was created in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, it was created by the London County Council architects during the war and they colour coded London basically they coloured all of the different buildings to show all of the damage which had been inflicted during the bombing raids of the Second World War so it records all of the damage from the, the firebombing but it also records the damage from the V1 V2 rockets as well um, it's quite an iconic map um, It's it's been uh, added to the UNESCO UK memory of the world register which is a register which acknowledges these important cultural artifacts um, it's one of a couple of documents which we've had added to that um, and it's it's been really popular with our users for a number of years not many people get to see the original um, so this is a bit of a treat really um, we do have it available in printed form downstairs and mostly it's used like that um, if i just pull this drawer open and uh, i'll uh, show you what we've got So
0: here it is between the sheets. between a couple of sturdy pieces of cardboard. I'll
1: just get this one up. There we go.
0: Okay, so we've got something here that is decent poster size. It's landscape in orientation. Um, on the right-hand side, I'm looking for anything, uh, Whitechapel, East Ward, Stepney. Uh, over to the left, we've got Coleman Street Ward, Candlewick Ward, Billingsgate Ward, that's the first one I've really recognised, bottom centre, the tower. Uh, up top, we've got Bishopsgate, Spitalfields. Uh, it's just going off towards Shoreditch at the top there. And the colouring of the map, well, it, it reminds me of the... Uh, poverty maps that we've talked about previously on the show Um, a number of different colours being used here I I suspect we'll find out what the key is big blotches of purple top left and down near the tower and uh, then in certain places in the east end it looks like it's coming off Whitechapel High Street a lot of black areas Uh, should I take it that uh, black means that something particularly awful happened there
1: That's right. So black represents total destruction on the map. So it means the building was completely wiped out. And then it goes purple, which basically means the the building was damaged beyond repair, would have to be pulled down. Um, And then through to uh, the light yellow colour, which means superficial damage. Maybe some of the windows were blown out, something repairable. Well, this
0: is is really shocking then. Uh, Of course, we know that the East End was hit hard in the Blitz and the, the other bombing raids. Um, but these purple areas are really quite extensive. Um, and then we've got um, some green
1: down at the at the bottom here. What does green mean? Again, it's, it's part of the the scale of damage, basically. So I, I suspect those areas were probably recovered. You can, you can also see on the map um, the circles. Now, the circles specifically represent where, oh, yeah. where the rockets fell. Um, these larger circles... Um, I believe uh, the V1 rockets Um, and you can see for example on this street in the east end on Adler Street uh, a direct hit there right in the middle of the street and all of the houses and buildings around there completely destroyed um, except the ballroom on the corner it seems survived intact for some reason Hmm. and we've got another one over
0: there oh the London hospital an entire wing of the London Hospital, although it's marked as uh, yellow, so perhaps it managed uh, to to fare a little bit better than some of the others. Uh, there's a hit on the rail tracks coming into uh, a goods depot here, so possibly they hit what they were after there. One or two others that just seem to have fallen uh, onto warehouses, uh, dwellings. And uh, we've got the uh, the wharfs down here. Uh, it's just coming off the map. I wish we had a little bit more detail down there, but it looks as though one has hit Custom House and another one has hit the uh, the London Bridge
1: Wharf. I think the the large purple areas, which you can see on this map around around the city and the, the east part of the city, probably relate to uh, the Blitz, basically, and the firebombing raids, which were really concentrated on particular areas. And the, the blitz on the city, um, we also have the fire brigade reports for it, which describe what was, what was happening. Usually those reports are quite specific and detailed. They'll say that the crew attended a particular street, this building had been damaged, there were casualties. There's a lot of information there. On the night of that particular raid on the city, um, they really just describe it as, as being from this street to this street to this street. It's all on fire.
0: Okay, good.
1: And I suppose the last thing they've got time for is uh,
0: detailed reports. Or, Oh, well, you've just uh, pulled us over to another map here, and I
1: suspect this has got to be around St. Paul's, hasn't it? Yeah, this is one of the really iconic images from the maps, and you can see that sea of destruction from the Blitz around St. Paul's Cathedral. But remar- it was very remarkable that it survived when so much around it was pulled down. I think these maps are astonishing as well if you look at them in the context of today. So you can see the whole area where the Barbican is now. Um, and if you look at some of the post-war films of that area that we have you can see that it's fields and rubble and it's a strange open space, it becomes almost a bigger urban playground and, and now obviously it's been completely read and you can see why in the context of these maps, why it changed but if you look at the detail on some of these you can see markings like stables and those kinds of things from I guess an earlier form of London really it was still there at that time and this is actually based on a, an earlier map which was drawn up in 1916, the survey itself, but really I think these maps are so important in just documenting how modern London developed
0: well I've never seen a we
1: reprodu- of course we do, we've all seen the
0: iconic image of the Dome of St Paul's surrounded by uh, smoke from surrounding fires but the well, it, it's hard to find a building there's a, a swathe more or less from the river right up to West Finsbury Ward and what can we see up there, Charter House long lane it goes further north than Barbican there and it's uh, well every every building on every block is purple and then right in the middle of it well it's kind of on the edge of it actually isn't it it looks as though um, it it was uh, just incredibly lucky I have to presume that if the blocks here below it that are white if they caught as well I can't imagine what chance it could possibly have stood if there was any sort of wind this does look like a miracle
1: yeah absolutely
0: what strikes you and i know you'll have studied this in much more detail you'll have presented this frequently to people do you find yourself noticing new things as you encounter the image again and again
1: yeah you do i mean what what i really like about these maps these older surveys is that they actually show um a lot of older buildings as well you can see some of the gothic typescript on some of these so uh, Duke's Theatre, the site of Duke's Theatre so it's, it's a historical reference to London as well on these older urban surveys I think that's one of the really interesting things about this particular map is that you have that sense about of what's about to happen to London in terms of the changes after the war but you also have this real sense of the, the past as well mm. and, and where London's developed from. Well something I'm
0: looking at up here it's uh, way north of St Paul's I guess it's coming off Farringdon Street, it's Central Markets, there's a long block of markets here uh now does that correspond with a different name that we would know today or is that is that completely changed
1: uh no i mean that's that's smithfield basically oh it is smithfield that's the smithfield market yeah
0: oh yes of course one two three giant squares there and a, a fourth irregular shape wow this is one of those things i could spend hours looking at we don't have hours unfortunately (laughs) what else is in this package i noticed that there are lots of uh, other maps lurking underneath these
1: yeah these sheets will cover most of the inner london area but there are oh i think about maybe um, 80 sheets of this this map so this covers what was the county of london that inner london area that we were talking about before but we also have the same survey for middlesex which um covers a lot of fields as well to the north of london and that kind of area but you it bizarrely you do look at those middlesex maps and you'll see one building out in the middle of a field which has been hit by by a german uh german aircraft it's quite remarkable that's like the inverse of winning the lottery
0: absolutely mm-hmm. well that's one draw among uh, I've, I've no idea how many do you know you don't know no. how many <laughs> draws <laughs> there's, there's a lot uh what else is contained here
1: Um, within these particular drawers I mean we have maps but we also have plans of buildings as well Um, so these were plans submitted to various different organizations in London dating back to the 19th century they often relate to a lot of um, changes which were being made for buildings and also actually new planning applications for buildings as well so among all of that stuff we have a great, great collection of theatre plans of all those Victorian theatres as they're going up. Really remarkable blueprint drawings which show you a lot of detail. Uh, they're quite special and we do get quite a lot of architectural researchers coming in to look at that kind of stuff. And we still get today kind of um, structural engineers coming in to look at if the building's still standing look at the plans and review that material as well. Does that then mean that you've got plans for buildings that weren't approved and don't exist? We do. uh, um, They tend to to exist within slightly different collections, but we, in that sense of London that never happened, we've got quite a lot of really nice material. Um, One of the really nice examples is probably the other designs for Tower Bridge, which didn't happen. Um, Obviously, as a relatively modern structure, Tower Bridge celebrating its anniversary, but we we have a lovely drawing uh, for a glass version a tower bridge a suggestion for a glass bridge across the Thames there which just is interesting but you kind of think it must it would have been absolutely nightmare to keep clean the window cleaning on the tower bridge would have been quite something I would have thought yeah presumably when they clean it it would turn invisible <laughs> wow have it- have we got a picture of that? Can we see it? Um, I'd, I'll see if I can find it for you, yeah. I'll oh, have yeah. to check the location if you can imagine a place like this. It's, that's not could, a
0: straightforward <laughs> thing. <laughs> if you could just reach immediately for it. Well, uh, that word collections that you use uh, reminds me that uh, at the beginning we touched on the fact that there are, I think, sort of 17, 18 loose categories of information here. Maybe that number's uh, slightly off, but you're able to categorise the different
1: sorts of information that you hold here, Yeah, we do. I mean, really the job of the archivists here is to try and break down these collections into manageable structures for people to come in to use them. So categorization starts from the beginning they come in. So let's take an example. We we have a really lovely collection for um, Jay Lyons and co, who are the confectionery people, uh, and who are based up at Greenford in Middlesex. So we, we have the entire collection of material which was deposited with us when that company effectively you know it was bought, I think it's been bought out by several corporations now um, but we have the archive for the company which existed in Greenford and, and what comes in is the whole, generally speaking, uh, most organisations when they get to that point in their life don't really have time to kind of have a good clear out before they deposit the archives, we'll take more or less everything and then the archivists either working with the depositor or just working here will work out well. what do you keep, what's going to be important, what might be useful, quite tough decisions to make, not an easy process but what you usually end up with are kind of groups of records, of so every Everything to do with an organization like that, with uh, the minutes and the, organ- and the management of the organization, you'll have all of the staff records as well, which document who worked there and what they did, that kind of thing. And then with a company like that, you'll get loads of great stuff about their recipes and the kinds of products they were making. Mm-hmm um in particular with um lions we we have lots of lovely menu cards from wimpy bars and uh, the lions corner houses and all of those kinds of places which are really really popular popular things but in a nostalgic way i also think in the graphic design way as well you see to see the the way that develops how people those kinds of brands and images develop themselves and and lions i think were probably quite innovative in that sense they have um a couple of a couple of great things in the collection one is um their very early attempts to um copyright frozen food or particularly the term fruit as it as they hoped it might end up becoming i don't think fruit ever really took off in that sense and we also have a lovely lovely photo uh from the i think the early part of the 20th century which is a a a cake machine it's a slot machine built into a wall if you can imagine a big brass machine with lots of knobs and dials on it at the bottom of this machine there's a big cake shaped slot full-size cake and presumably you put your pennies in picked whether you wanted a victoria sponge or whatever and i presumably somebody behind the scenes then passed this cake through the slot so i can't imagine it was very mechanical (laughs) but but still it gave a sense i suppose of modernity and development and at the forefront of technology I, i encountered
0: exactly the same thing i was very excited I was driving in Europe and I was hungry and I saw a little yellow booth by the side of the road and it said automatic pizza machine I thought why not and you could choose out of about three options and you put your coins in and I just—I was totally curious to know how it worked of course and after a little while I poked my head around the back and there's a bloke cooking and smoking a bag and he was just going to shove it out the slot <laughs> that's not automation Anyway, where are we off to now ok well let's go and take a look at the exhibition sounds good to me
1: London's Air Ambulance is the charity that delivers an advanced trauma team to critically injured people in London. Using a helicopter by day and rapid response cars by night, a doctor and a paramedic team can be at a patient's side within minutes. They provide life-saving medical interventions such as open-heart surgery, blood transfusions and anaesthesia at the roadside. Every second counts, as does every donation, big or small. Please visit londonsairambulance.co.uk. Thank you
0: well we're down in the first world war exhibition area at the london metropolitan archive and i suppose for me having written and researched a great deal around the first world war one of the things that one encounters to do with that period is that it was a watershed in terms of the awareness of imbalances in class in gender all those sort of things there was a societal and social shift going on at that point it made me wonder whether the choice that we make now as to what's valuable and what should be preserved and archived could be looked at in 100 years' time or 300 years' time as having some terrible imbalance inherent in them. Social history, for example, is a relatively new... Idea, and I think it was previously the history of the wealthy that was of concern. Here it looks as though we're going to be looking at the lives of people who went out to fight, or maybe people who stayed at home, I'm not sure. But what about that question of how you
1: second-guess yourself as to what's important and what's going to be important? Yeah, it's it's really, really difficult, and obviously it's been um, approached in different ways over the years. Certainly what we record very consistently throughout the archives is the official version of history. What we really, really like to bring in is that community view of history as well, and that individual view of history. I mean, we, we do end up with quite a lot of diary material from different collections, and those are probably one of the best ways that you get that really first-hand view of different experiences. But, I mean, historically, actually, most of your diarists you do encounter do tend to be from reasonably wealthy classes, or at least very well-educated and able to be able to do that. So the lives really of poorer people in say, the 19th century and even coming into this period around the First World War, we, we tend to still find that they're recorded by the authorities hmm. and that's kind of the main record we have, I suppose, of them uh, in the sense of telling us people who have maybe had fallen down on their luck and had to get support from, be it an organisation like the Boards of Guardians or local authority or one of those types of people and with this particular exhibition as well we, we're really looking at um, London County Council's Emergency Measures Committee, which was set up specifically at the start of the war to monitor social conditions in London. The, the council basically dispatched its education officers, so they would turn from, presumably, their regular work to go out into what were the metropolitan boroughs, into the local areas, and start making reports on a weekly basis on things like uh, welfare, um, whether families appear to be suffering from from anything at all, uh, working conditions, whether, whether people were becoming unemployed, whether particular industries were suffering, and really kind of any shifts in people's lives. And they recorded all of this quite meticulously. It's a very interesting record because it also gives you a sense of, well, how does a major, major event like the First World War affect different parts of London? Do they all have the same experience? Or is it worse in one and better in another? Well, you've asked the question, now I want an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to come to the yes. exhibition of, uh, No, I mean, you do tend to find that um, some of the predictable patterns you might expect, so for example, Hampstead, which is a very wealthy area today, then perhaps it doesn't have quite the same impact on that area as it does in somewhere like Stepney. But at the same time, uh, parts of town which you might expect to be doing fairly well, like Islington, which has quite a lot of middle class um, families of our time, what these these records record is actually a change in people's lives, because a lot of the men who leave and go away to fight from those families um, it, they leave their families behind just with the army salary, the army income, and what it means is the wives and children are actually managing the same family house, the same family property, but with a lot less money. And there's a really interesting thing that happens during the First World War, where a lot of the, the reports suggest that working class families or poorer families actually become a lot better off during the period of the First World War because of army incomes. So the army income is actually more than the salary that men would have earned if they were working. Whereas for the middle classes it goes the other way.
0: Well, there's a, an imbalance as well there, isn't there? Because the the life expectancy uh, at the front of an officer who would typically be drawn from one of the higher social echelons was much shorter than that of... Uh, not, not that anybody had a great chance of survival, but men who were leading other men out of the trenches and across no-man's land had a very, very slim chance of survival. So in, in a way, I wonder whether more affluent areas might not suffer disproportionately more...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think it probably was the case. And we've got some really nice personal records from Hampstead here um, with uh, a family, a young girl, who, who wrote this thing called the Invalids magazine album. Um, And she really documents what's going on in Hampstead at the time. And there's obviously you can see a lot of um, guys leaving with regiments like the artist's rifles, those kinds of parts of the army. This is the video display we're looking at. Yeah. And this is a lovely little photo album. These, These are snaps taken by a young woman. Um, and it really records the year in a very, very local perspective she, she has photos of the, the Boy Scouts doing their work in Hampstead, photos of the Belgian refugees coming in to, to help as well with war work um, but she also has lots of photos in the centre of town around Trafalgar Square of the rallies of the young men all getting together and you, you do see all of the straw boaters are there, that sense of early enthusiasm in 1914 to, to go off and, and take part in what was happening, it's a very, very interesting record but as a personal record it's it's curious as well because uh, um, actually a a member of the family she documents in this book going away and and then he did die while he was out there as well so you can see that they lost their in that that sense they lost their family in much the same way as other people in other parts of London did as well what are the
0: sorts of impacts do you record and when I ask that question I've got in mind that one of the oft overlooked aspects of the first world war and how it might have affected London were things like zeppelin raids even uh, aerial raids by planes
1: yeah and we we have we have some really really interesting records about how the air raids worked out we haven't actually touched on them in this particular exhibition because they they start in uh, in Uh, 1915 right this is the first five months isn't it but the next year we will be going there and there there will be an exhibition here about that material and we're looking to expand some of that research as well the map that you were looking at um upstairs for the second world war is kind of a really nice visual source and we something we would maybe like to start is a creative project maybe to create something similar for the first world war which actually records where all that damage occurred, to give you a sense of how london starts developing between that first world war second world war period um, were you personally responsible for uh, curating this
0: yes yeah how did you go about selecting what was included and what wasn't
1: uh, we we have a research team so we work together you, you outsourced it <laughs> some of it yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean we have, have a team of great colleagues who um, do a lot of research within the collections to find really interesting stories there's so much material here, it is actually was it's always quite hard to just bring it down to a amount of material which is manageable in this space which isn't huge for exhibitions but we hope that what we end up with um, is a really good taster and then inspires people who come along to maybe go and do some of their own research next door in the research rooms. That's always the main objective with the exhibitions. But we start really by searching our catalogues, um, keyword searching, looking for interesting themes and stories. And then at the end of the day, you have to get down and and get into the records and work through them and research them and, and see what's being said there. And really, sometimes one might seem like on the surface, quite boring, uninteresting sources can turn out to be really, really, really interesting. And that's what we certainly found with these minutes from the London County Council. If we come over uh, to the wall over here, we've actually uh, exploded the view of some of the minutes entries from the book, uh, the minute book that we have, and and broken them down into date order. And you can see how they break out into... um, Metropolitan Borough, so you get a sense of um, London Borough of Deptford there, and a report on conditions on the in the home in October 1914, and he's talking there about um, the work going on at the Castle Market and the victualling Lard and, and the Royal Arsenal as well, continuing at high pressure. So there was actually loads of work down there, and the young men were getting loads of work down at the Royal Arsenal and and possibly working far too much in terms of overtime and what they were being paid and there's there's kind of a bit of uh, discontent there I think from the reporting officer suggesting that actually maybe they're being exploited a bit and worked to death down in that area but it's a different story in other parts of area in the very early part of the war um, certainly around uh, Hoxton the cabinet trade completely dies and that's what this record tells us that cabinet makers really falling on hard times because they just haven't got customers anymore the war starts people are afraid of what's about to happen they won't spend on what might be seen as luxury goods and therefore anybody who's working in those kinds of areas is, is suddenly finding it difficult to to actually make a sale. Well, a couple of lines jump out here both of them from the east end we've got
0: in the borough of Poplar hot pickers have now returned home and conditions are generally reported to be normal there is no evidence of acute distress and this is confirmed by members of the local relief committee and uh, further down it says at Messrs. Clark, Nichols and Coombs Confectionery works Hackney Wick the firm has this week ceased its weekly allowance to soldiers' wives and then we move across, again, Borough of Poplar, including Bow and Bromley. The docks are still fairly busy, although in some places casual labour is slack. The ironworks are busy on the Isle of Dogs. Messrs. Burrells, Oil and Varnish Works at Millwall report that a good town trade is being transacted, but no export. Men are on short time.
1: This is a particularly interesting theme which comes up, um, and, and this is drinking among women during the day particularly, um, and the idea that women are drinking too much, that getting drunk and disorderly and, and out of control in particular areas. And we're assuming that these are wives of reservists and men who have signed up and gone, who are now in possession of this army pay. Um, some of these reporting officers go as far as to say that you know, they don't know how to spend it. They're quite patronising in their tone, the way that these men report on what's happening. But that one in particular is for the borough of Greenwich and it's a fairly similar pattern you, you see that in, in various different areas of London those kinds of reports appearing about women waiting outside the pub at 11 o'clock in the morning to, to go in and start drinking
0: well, I think there's a disruption of stereotypes on several different fronts going on there, but we, we, we don't need to dwell on that. But I will say that the information and the details here are really exciting, not in a good way necessarily, but they give an insight that I haven't come across having done loads of research on this period. This is well worth getting down to and having a look. And well, we've just got a few minutes left on today's episode, barely enough time to include all the many things that we wanted to
1: include. What should we try and ram into the final few minutes of the podcast? Uh, maybe we could go through to the research room and we can just have a quick look at what people are doing out there Listen up, I'm going to say this very, very quietly because we're now in the reading rooms
0: and people can hear me I can't help noticing that the users of the reading rooms all fall into a certain age bracket
1: that that's largely true. Um, obviously, because it's daytime at the moment, we get a lot of retired people in uh, at this particular time of day. Oh, I see. <laughs> and family history is uh, is quite a popular pastime. But um, but, there, but there's, a,
0: there's a truth in there somewhere, isn't there? That perhaps as you get on in years, you start to value something about family more and want to know a little bit more about where you came from those kind of things that you just take for granted early on is it there's something in that isn't there
1: yeah, possibly i think so um, And people do come in and find really interesting stories about uh, their own roots and and we get people who become quite addicted to this and then start researching with their friends and and so on so goes, yeah, that's essentially cyber stalking with paper i think so pretty much i would like to point out that we do have a number of younger people in here as well though we do get quite a lot of students during the day Um, academics who we we often at this time of year get academics over from the, the United States from the universities in the States who come over and research the London records obviously because of the periods of history which we cover um and, uh, and it can be quite a mixed crowd it tends to change into the evening where obviously people who have finished work can come in uh, we're open until 7.30 on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday so it gives those people an opportunity to come in and use the materials as well And I don't know if it's because it's good weather and uh,
0: you can tell that this is a place that's uh, quite often packed but they're uh, uh, unlike some libraries and uh, research facilities there are lots of spare computers where you can get so you, you've got a good chance of getting online and uh, accessing the, the databases here
1: Yeah, we have a lot of terminals, but today uh, we're not as busy as we usually are. I think the weather obviously does have an impact on particularly people who do this for leisure, who are doing it for fun. Um, Yeah, so all your usual customers are out in the park out there uh, researching the inside of their eyelids. Uh,
0: Very possibly, yeah. We reluctantly have to draw away from the London Metropolitan Archives. I have one final question. And it came from the terminology you've been using just in the last couple of things we've talked about. You're the principal archivist. And uh, you've used the word stories. You've you've talked a lot about finding stories, about seeing stories, about putting stories together. Are you a storyteller?
1: Personally, I, I do enjoy that. I mean, my job here really is to help other people tell stories. Uh, and I think first and foremost that's what we're here for but when you're around so much interesting material all the time it's very hard not to pull those stories out yourself so as and when I get time it's nice to be able to do it with the exhibitions here with a lot of digital work that we do as well Um, and I've always got lots of ideas in mind for future development Well Lawrence Wood thanks very much for taking the time today. Thank you very much you're welcome My
0: heart aches And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Lawrence Ward. Thanks too to Andrew Buckingham, Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe.